You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Jesse Single. Jesse, who was already a guest on this podcast, um, is a journalist. Uh, a podcaster himself. Um, his podcast with Katie Herzog is called Blocked and Reported. And I'm actually a subscriber to that podcast. I love it. It is um, my guilty pleasure when I'm running. Thank you. It's a podcast about internet bullshit, as he put it. Um, it's kind of Twitter in a more entertaining form. I, I, I love your podcast. And he is also the author of the Quick Fix. What is the subtitle, Jesse? Can you just remind me? Uh, <laughs> uh, why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. That would have been embarrassing Thanks. if I failed to remember. And I, now <laughs> I'm paranoid because I don't have the name in front of me that I got a word wrong. But yes, that's it. My excuse is that I'm working from a review PDF, um, so I can't easily scroll around and find things. Um, Yes. The, so the quick fix, why fad psychology can't cure our social ills. Thank you. I think we will go through some of the examples in order, but I'd like to begin by reading a passage. This is from the end of the chapter on um, the concept of grit, um, which was something popularized by Angela Duckworth in her book of the same name. And in a, um, I'm sure she has a TED talk also. Yeah. Everybody has a TED Talk. It's a very bad sign when, when an idea is presented in a TED Talk, as far as I'm concerned. I just assume <laughs> if there's a TED Talk, it must be bullshit. Um, my, book do, my book does not have an associated TED Talk, <laughs> so that means my book is true. Absolutely. And I think this passage, which is specifically about the grit concept, but I think it gets to the heart of some of the issues that you, the wider implications of the issues that you tackle in the book. You write, the world is a big and scary place, and imposing structures often circumscribe our room to maneuver. That's why the reductive storytelling of grit is so appealing. That's why we turn to figures like Martin Seligman for positive thinking that can shield us from trauma, or Amy Chua for parenting advice, or Angela Duckworth for the secret to grittiness. There's always that idea of the side entrance. There's always something you, the individual, can do to regain control in a world that sometimes seems hell-bent of robbing you of it. Let's start with an example, and I think the one that is the most, to me, the most striking and um, dispiriting example in the entire book, um, which is the way in which positive psychology was sold to the army as as a kind of means of not even combating, but sort of preventing PTSD. Yeah, that, that was, um, that's sort of one of the chapters I'm hoping gets the most attention because it's surprising how little attention this story has gotten, but the, and I'll try to keep it 
relatively short for your podcast, but basically no, um, you can named, you can go at any length you like. All right, I'll take this is going to take five hours. So okay, uh, <laughs> is everybody sitting down comfortably? Have you all been to the loo? Do you have something to I, I eat hope, and drink? Um, I hope you're sitting down. Um, so there's a, a man named uh, Martin Seligman. He's a very accomplished psychologist. He he helped co-founded this field called positive psychology and he runs the positive psychology center out of the university of Pennsylvania in the late aughts, the U S military had this horrible problem, particularly the army in that, you know, these, these young men, these kids basically were being sent on multiple, very grueling deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan and, uh, coming back just horribly traumatized and they would have PTSD there were a shocking number of suicides. Some of them would commit violent crimes. And the army needed to do something about this. And they found Seligman. And what Marty Seligman did was he took this pre-existing program he had, a, a program uh, geared at 10 to 14-year-olds in school settings uh, called the Penn Resilience Program. And he said, well, we have evidence that this program can prevent anxiety and depression. Let's adapt it to a military setting. Um, and I mean, the short version is is more than a decade and something like $500 plus later. We don't have a precise price tag. Do you mean 500 no billion evidence. or 500 million or something? What did I you said 500. That would be very cheap. <laughs> the most uh, cost-effective Pentagon program in history. $500 million, which... Um, you know, by Pentagon standards is not a lot, but by the standards of of the kind of mental health good you could do with that kind of money is a huge amount. There's no evidence this program does anything. There's a lot of evidence that that Seligman and his Positive Psychology Center overclaimed, and they took a program. I mean, just think about the difference between a program designed for twelve year olds whose whose major stressors in life are boy trouble or having too much homework, and then saying. This program will, will prevent PTSD and suicide uh, applied to 20-year-old men going into Fallujah, into horrific war zones. I, I think that should have raised some eyebrows, but the whole point of my book is that half-baked psychological claims often gain purchase and often do a lot of damage, and I think that's an example of this. Yeah, um, it's partly because of the the supposed ease of the problem. So there's this kind of idea that you can somehow there's an easy way to send people into send young men into a war zone where they may be almost killed where they watch their their friends and colleagues um co-fighters um being blown to bits in front of their eyes and then just a little bit of kind of nice psychology will will stop them from having major will stop that from having a major impact on them it's so extraordinary yeah. that anybody ever ever thought this. Yeah. And, and, and the chapter includes, um, I spoke at length with Patricia Rezik, who's a uh, behavioral health scientist herself, and she's a leading trauma researcher. She created one of the leading evidence-based protocols for, for fighting PTSD. And what she told me is that, you know, when, when your client is a 20-year-old who watched his friends die or who killed people himself and is trying to resolve this trauma that is not an easy or a photogenic or a fun, inspiring process. And, and I think part of what makes this a noteworthy story is the Army adapted this sort of pro-resilience framing where it's like, you know, we can just get these soldiers to be more resilient, to be more optimistic. That'll shield them from trauma. 
and you know, I thought you put it nicely. It's it's almost an offensive idea in context to think that that sort of program could could really prevent or undo the the true horrific harms of war. It's it seems to it's a um, running theme throughout the book. This idea of really difficult problems, intractable problems, or problems that are multifactorial in their causes, and problems that impact individuals, which individuals are really powerless, or at least partially powerless to solve on their own, can be somehow solved by a change in the individual's attitude or thinking. And I mean, I understand why people are why why people are so attracted to these kinds of theories because it gives you a sense that you have some control it's the thing that you can do to try to make things better and so of course you know if you are having trouble getting a job you may not be able to alter the the job market but maybe you can go into the toilet beforehand and stand with your legs akimbo and power pose for 5 minutes and that might help um it makes you feel that you have more influence over things than you do, that you can kind of bend the universe to your your will more easily just by by kind of changing how you think. And this PTS, the the way that um the positive psychology was used for was was used for PTSD is is just seem seems to me like the most egregious example of this idea. Yeah, yeah, it, it stands out to me because it's really targeting such a vulnerable population, and and of course the book is is full of critiques along those lines. I mean, you mentioned power posing. I think there's a similar thing going on with grit, where it's like the idea that the average low income kid in a bad school, without family support or social support, that that really what they're missing is grit. To me, is a little bit myopic. But but yeah, the comprehensive soldier fitness really stands out as just like. I view it as a little bit of a scandal in plain sight. And other than my chapter and this one USA Today reporter and this one other academic and a couple other people who never got the attention they deserved, this story hasn't really gotten out. Can you run us through it in a bit more detail? How how the army came to adopt this and 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 why they thought it was a good idea? Who signed off on this and what happened basically? Yeah. So what's interesting, I, I think I ended up not mentioning this in the chapter. There are some conspiracy theories about Seligman's involvement because he was he was not directly involved in the torture program, but there's a lot of uh, the CIA torture program. There's been a lot of speculation about that. I, I have not looked into every nook and cranny of that debate. The charges that are out there that were reported by outlets like Salon seem to be a little bit of like these guys involved were a little bit influenced by this one theory of his, and then that connects to X, to Y, to Z. It's a little bit of like six degrees of separation. I don't think anyone has like really proven he was um, he deserves those charges. And I say that as someone who's critical of him in the book. The story I tell is that a, a woman named uh, Jill Chambers, I think she was a lieutenant colonel, she was appointed by the top brass uh, of the military to be the person who's going to go out figure out what's going on with PTSD and figure out a way to fight it. And, and one day she's on a plane, uh, I think to Boston with her husband, who's a country musician. And he happens to be reading a book by this guy, Martin Seligman. And this book says, you know, you can uh, prime your pump as, as he put it, you can really prepare yourself for adversity beforehand and then adversity won't hit you quite so hard. 
So it was a short path from from that, you know, him reading the book on the plane to Jill Chambers, I think, with her husband, meeting Marty Seligman in the garden of his Philadelphia house. And then he he sort of blew the army away. He was able to really sort of convince the army he was the guy because he seemed, as another army source put it to me, he seemed to have all these books, all these articles, all this research. But when you look more into that research, there's just much less there than meets the eye. Yeah, you talked about with with Marty Seligman and I think other people too, the contrast between the thought leader mode and the public intellectual mode. So when Seligman and and I think this was true of Duckworth and some of the other figures you cited in the book are presenting their work in the in their in kind of academic journals, um, which of course are paywall to the general public. So we can't most of us can't actually even see what is what is said and claimed there. Um, their claims are much more modest than the ones they're making when they're giving their TED Talks and interviews, etc. So there is this sort of slippage between what they're really saying in the science and what they're saying in the kind of public, in the public domain. Yeah, I, I, so I took that Daniel Dresner, who I think is a political scientist by training, has a book called The Ideas Industry, and he he lays it out much as you described. You have thought leaders who are the types of people you see on TED Talks. They have one big idea that they think is going to change the world. Then you have public individuals who are a little bit more critical and humble and hedgy. They're more likely to favor you know multi-causal accounts and. Um, you know, what I point out in my book is that some figures can sort of dance between the two roles. Uh, I talk about this more in the super predator chapter, but like p- some people are capable of doing solid, careful research in those aforementioned paywall journals. Not that those journals are always great, which is something mm, else I talk mm. about. But then their, their TED Talks, it's like they become sort of more of a, a guru figure almost, someone who's very confident and, and leaves out a lot of complexity. Yes. I, um, I, in a recent episode, I talked to Stuart Ritchie, um, and he's great. Yeah, we talked a lot about p hacking, harking, um, and various other sorts of um, and and um, file drawing and various other practices that lead to the actual published research um, being misleading or overhyped um, within the scientific papers themselves. But this is a whole nother. Um, level of magnitude. So, for example, Angela Duckworth in her paper on grit, um, in one of the scientific papers, I think you say she talks about a 0.5%, she detects a 0.5% difference between the grittier students and the non-grittier students in their school achievement. And I I don't even know whether that, you know, the the figure that the paper comes to is in any way valid. But that's the figure that she comes to in the paper. But in the TED Talk, she presents this as there was a significant difference between the grittier students and the non-grittier ones. Um, And nobody listening to that TED Talk would ever think that 0.5% was significant. Yeah. So she's an example of someone where she's in some ways, I think she's been pretty honest and forthright about the limitations of her research. But on the TED Talk stage and this quote she gave to the Times, she makes claims about grit that are just not warranted. Like, as you said, in many of these papers, grit doesn't seem to be all that correlated with anything. Or in some of them, 
It is, but she doesn't also measure conscientiousness, which is a well-established construct that sort of could be seen as competing with grit. So it's that gap between the public pop science statements scientists make and then the content of their papers that that concerns me and that I try to highlight. And once again, it's it's passing the buck to the individual, um, to the individual students to become quote unquote grittier, and which seems to be just more persevering. And perseverance, as you yourself point out, is itself an ambiguous quality, because persevering in uh, you know there are certain things that it's it's wise to persevere in, and others that it's not. You know, if I decide to persevere in the example that was given recently in a book on AI in melting down all of the currency in the United Kingdom to make a statue of one of the Teletubbies. I could be very <laughs> persevering in that and very gritty, but it's not necessarily a recipe for success. You know, obsession is also not necessarily a good thing. It depends on what you're, <laughs> what you're obsessed with. Um, yeah, there's some flattening there, right? Be, and and um, other writers have pointed this out too, but it's like, when do you actually want to stick with a task and just not let it go? Because a lot of the most successful people, you know, up to and including Einstein, were, were perfectly capable of abandoning projects or turning away from dead ends. So I, I do think there's something a little bit limiting about the con the concept. That said, you know, uh, all else being equal, I do think people high in, in big five conscientiousness or grit or whatever you want to call it, all things being equal, which they rarely are, they do a little bit better in school and at work. It's just not anywhere near as big a deal as people think. There's a lot of other correlates, including just straightforward intelligence that are much more important in most contexts. So I think in America in particular, we're very into self-help. We love the idea that individuals can just like pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And there's times that's true. All else, again, all else being equal, people, it'd be great if people put more effort in, but it's just often obscures a much more complicated picture. And it places a lot of blame on people who don't succeed because it yes. implies that if you had only, if you'd only cultivated the right qualities, um, then you would succeed. Yeah. And that, that sort of drives me crazy. I mentioned this a couple of times in the book, but I'm from a, like a fairly affluent upper middle-class Boston suburb. And I, I was like a screw up in high school. I really was incapable of effort or organization, but because of my sort of socioeconomic background and having highly educated parents, I just had this like safety net. I was not going to fall that far. Basically, no matter what, I was going to go to college. And I feel like I I've enjoyed a lot of advantages and perks despite not being gritty. So I really don't like the idea that when it comes to poor kids from like truly challenging circumstances I could never envision to, to tell them they lack grit strikes me as really off base. Mm. I mean, my circumstances were different, were very different from yours. And I think that I was a gritty um, school child. And that was part of the reason why I was successful at that stage in my life. My big failures didn't come until much later. Um, but <laughs> also, I think that even in my own case, where my parents had died, and I wasn't at an academically good school, um, and I didn't have really any adult support. But nevertheless, there was a hell of a lot of luck that also went into that. Oh my God, yeah. Um, there were so many, I mean, it, my situation could have been worse in so many ways. Um, and also, 
you know, there, there's also, of course, genetics. Um, there are facets of personality and intelligence that uh, you probably can do not cannot do a great deal to change. Well, that's I bet. I bet. I bet even grit has mm. a strong genetic. I don't know as much about the genetics, but part of the reason I'm such a skeptic of meritocracy is I think even things like grittiness and perseverance likely, whether they're influenced strongly by our upbringing or by genetics, I don't think they're choices we make, right? Um, no. Well, I'm a non-believer in free will, but that's a whole, that's I'm, a whole I'm other skeptical of it too. Yeah, we're, we're probably not going to resolve that in this podcast. <laughs> it's all luck all the way down, right? Yeah. And all the way back to the Big Bang. Um, I'm going to read another little passage of your book because I, um, I think there are two interesting and contrasting themes in the book. And maybe this passage will, actually, maybe it won't, but I'm going to read it anyway. Our society's fascination, fascination with psychology has a dark side. Many half-baked ideas, ideas that may not be 100% bunk, but which are severely overhyped, are being enthusiastically spread, despite a lack of hard evidence in their favour. The IAT is one example, but there are numerous others. The popularity of these ideas, as well as the breathless manner with which they are marketed by TED Talks and university press offices and journalists and podcasts, is not harmless. It misallocates resources to overclaiming researchers when others are experiencing a funding crunch. And in general, it degrades the institution of psychology by blurring the line behind behavioral si- between behavioral science and behavioral pseudoscience. Actually, that passage had nothing to do with what I was about to say, but it's a very good passage anyway, so I'm glad I read <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. Appreciate um, that. But what I was struck by was this twofold pattern. On the one hand, um, there are these searches for kind of quick behavioral fixes, you know, just change the way you stand or just do these positive psychology exercises um, or just develop grittiness. Although I think Duckworth never actually, and her and her followers never actually say how or prove that you can actually develop it. She's open about the fact that in, in her view, the science is early and we don't have a proven way. And I, I looked into that question and there, there's not there's no proof of like a scalable intervention to improve school kids' grits. There's some somewhat promising studies, but they're more specific and less scalable than that. Sorry to talk over you. Yeah, no, please talk over me. I don't want to, I mean, you're the guest. Um, (laughs) But also, on the other hand, there is this kind of belief that subliminal and even unconscious and fleeting kind of things in the environment have this massive effect on us and we are just sort of powerless before them. And you call you call this kind of idea prime world. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So prime world comes out of the idea of social priming. And despite the name, social primes aren't always social. They just refer to these the idea that unconscious uh, stimuli can affect our behavior in in surprisingly big ways. And the classic experimental example was, according to a a very famous study from the 90s, uh, if you're exposed to sort of geriatric stimuli, like imagery or words pertaining to being old, you'll walk slower. You'll walk like an old person. And that's a very arresting study. 
it's crazy to imagine that such a subtle influence could affect our behavior that way. Another sort of famous, well-covered one involved looking at a secular statue or a religious statue. And the researchers found that looking at a religious statue made you believe in God significantly more. Looking at a secular statue made you believe in God significantly less. I, I have a whole chapter about these studies and how many of them have just sort of collapsed under the weight of failed replication attempts. And in retrospect, we should have known, like everyone should have known, that as one of the authors of the statue study now acknowledged to Vox that like religion is a lot more complicated and stable than that. It, it doesn't make sense to say you look at a statue and you become significantly less religious because that's not how human psychology works. So, so prime world is this idea that there are all these like simple primes and biases we can address to, to greatly salubrious effect to improve the world. And I'm not against the idea of like some nudges, like making, moving the desserts to the back of the cafeteria to, you know, reduce people's daily calorie intake by 150, ca- like little stuff like that works sometimes, although it always has to be tested. But Prime world is this this view that like we can really make a lot of progress toward gender equality with power posing, or we can make a lot of progress toward ending racism with the implicit association test. And that the underlying thesis is that things are okay how they are. We just we just need to tweak around the edges. We need to fix primes and biases. And part of the point of the book is to is to highlight that worldview and to show why it why it falls short of really getting us anywhere. Mm. Yeah. I was surprised that you didn't mention Darren Brown in the book in relation to prime world, because I think most of, um, or many, um, British people are familiar with this notion from Darren Brown. So he's done a number of kind of experiments showing how easy it is to, um, manipulate people's thoughts and behavior through priming. But, but the, the, the thing is that Darren Brown is a magician. He is not a scientist. And right. at the beginning of each of his programs, he says, by the way, <laughs> you know, this isn't real. This is magicianship, sl- sleight of hand, showmanship, and misdirection. Um, and people just, people, however, seem to completely forget that as soon as the cameras start rolling. Um, right. I think there's been this giant um, confusion in people's minds um, about about how how true the kind of priming thing is. I don't know. Are you familiar with Darren Brown? I, I'm not, but I, I should say it, it would not surprise me if you can do like priming effects at a, like some of them are real. You can definitely, like if you expose people subtly to certain words, they will sometimes be more likely to think of those words in a free association task in a lab setting. So some of the priming effects are real. What is, the problem is A, a lot of them are not. They haven't replicated. Like like that corner of psychology has a terrible replication track record. That's one problem. The other problem is even if you can generate an effect in a lab, to then say that that in the real world has a major impact on people's eating behavior or voting behavior or whatever else, that, that's often a stretch. Yeah. Um, I mean – um, there was there were all those studies by Brian Vansink about how you could be primed to eat less. And yeah. I, I, believe- I actually don't mention him, but he he's <laughs> yeah. faced like he in that case it gets to the point of like potential data fraud. There's like yes. real red flags there. Yeah. A woman named Stephanie Lee at BuzzFeed has exposed that. Yes. Um yeah, I mean Darren Brown uses priming effects, quote unquote, to um play Russian roulette on live television. 
um, where he supposedly primed his assistant to um, to put the the um, the bullet in a particular barrel by the way that he talked to him, but without actually saying any numbers. Um, I gotta watch this. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a scary. famous video from uh, from two thousand and nine. This is when Darren Brown kind of shot to fame, and uh, but clearly it's not. He's not relying on priming effects. I mean, there was an actual bullet in there, and he shot. You know, he play, He actually <laughs> right. played Russian roulette. That was true, but no, he didn't actually play Russian roulette. Let me put it like that. But he certainly didn't rely on priming effects to uh, to not kill himself on live television while his mother was watching. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would hope not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but pe- people love that idea, and they're just very attached to it. Yeah, I mean, um, part of that chapter, I trace sort of the history of this from like the subliminal messaging craze that started mid-century in the States to the present day. People love the idea that that we're being buffeted by sources beyond, uh, forces beyond our knowledge and we can be manipulated. It's like, it's scary and it's sexy and exciting. I mean, a version of it goes all the way back to like to the ancient Greeks, to Plato. So um, I totally understand why people are into it. And there's versions of it that are true, but like, uh, I think people who read the chapter will see that many of the claims social priming experts made got got a little bit out of hand. What are the versions that are true? The versions that are true are, as far as I can tell, and, and I should say like social priming as a field is on the verge of being abandoned because it's had such so many failed replications. <laughs> I, I no, I, I mentioned that as a sign of progress uh, in the book. To me, I, I'm more confident based on what I know about those studies, like I mentioned, where if like I, you know, briefly, I'm making this up, but if I briefly show you a bunch of photos and one of them is a towel, and then I ask you to free associate some words, towel is probably in the back of your brain somewhere and will be more likely to come up when you free associate words. And those are, you know, interesting, cute studies that tell us a little something about human cognition. They don't necessarily have a huge amount of real world relevance. Yeah. So something that you talked about that did have a lot of real world relevance um, in in quite pernicious ways was the scare about um, um, super predators. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, in the 90s, uh, America was facing what looked like a pretty scary spike in youth crime. And there were all these horrible stories of murders committed by, you know, sometimes 10 or 11 or 12 year olds. And this guy, John DeUlio, a professor at University of Pennsylvania, who was, um, you know, a fairly well-respected political scientist who had written about, like, the prison system and prison management, he came up with the idea of a super predator, which is a young person who, because of the results of moral poverty, meaning an absence of guidance and moral teaching in their upbringing, just basically becomes like an amoral killing machine who, who doesn't quite act the way human beings do. And this event caught on. And even though DeUlio would sometimes say super predators can be white, he was talking about black kids. And, and he was pretty upfront about that. And this idea, to a certain extent, helped spur a nationwide push toward much harsher laws, specifically targeting violent youth that uh, we now recognize as in unjust because of the nature of sort of adolescent brain development and, and, you know, just our basic sense of decency. You, most people agree you should not be locked up for something you did as a 14 year old forever, even if it was quite bad. So 
This is another idea. It's perhaps distinct in the book in that there's almost no there there. Like there's these little kernels of truth to it, but like he never really defined exactly what he meant by a super predator. He was basically just like, some kids do really bad things and have no sense of morality, which is like, if you understand how teenagers work or how gangs work or how what deprivation can do to people, it shouldn't surprise you that there are going to be some 14-year-olds, especially in, in neighborhoods where guns flooded in because of our, our crack a- epidemic. Um, there's going to be kids killing one another. It's horrible. It doesn't mean there's some like new species of evil wrongdoer. It means they're kids in terrible circumstances doing terrible things. It seems like it's sort of parallel to grit in a way, except in a much more um, sinister way. It illustrates something you call the jangle fallacy in the book, um, which is sort of putting a, a new name on something that, inventing a kind of new word for something and making people believe that therefore you're dealing with some new phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually hadn't even made that connection myself because I mentioned that in the Grit chapter. But in a sense, that's what John Dulio and the other people pushing the super predator theory were doing because it, it isn't a new observation to say teenagers can act in a deeply reckless, immoral manner. Their innovation was to posit this whole new category, this whole new uh, species of the underclass. That, But but nothing, none of this was new. And, and in fact, they made these horrifying predictions about youth crime continuing to get worse and worse and just cities drenched in blood. And in fact, the opposite happened. Like um, the U.S. basically has had a long-running decline in violent crime since the mid-90s or so, although now there's some signs it might tick back up. But um, they were wrong on just about every count. Yeah, it was a, it was a moral panic. Um, I mean, you talked yes. about the Central Park, the, bank, the banking banker, woman banker who was attacked in Central Park. Um, and I actually remember I I remember hearing about that in the news and being feeling as though if I ever went to the US I would not go to Central Park at all or if I went I would have to be like accompanied by my male friends in the same way by ways your I, big strong podcaster <laughs> male friends yes, yes exactly in the same ways I thought it would be dangerous to go to a, an Ivy League university campus in the States because you had a very high chance of being gang raped by frat boys. Um, There was this kind of um, moral panic about the levels of violence in the US and how they were going to be um, increasing. You talk about this ticking demographic demographic time bomb um, that they believed was sort of going to lead to a huge increase in criminality. I mean, you know, we should be clear. There, there have, there were times when crime was scary, and there were times when New York City was very rough. And uh, you would not have wanted to go into Central Park at night, at least. Um, yeah, they basically they they sort of they ran this calculation from this one cohort study out of, out of Philadelphia, saying, and they said, okay, X percentage of kids who grow up in these circumstances become violent killers. There's going to be a big surge in young people in the years ahead. Therefore, there's going to be all these super predators prowling the streets. And, you know, it would take a whole podcast to explain all the methodological problems with what they were saying. I do lay it out in the book, but they were just like their numbers were so wrong. And it's it's an example of people using bad statistics to to buttress a claim that feels real and feels urgent, but which has very little actual empirical weight behind it. And it led to them um, redefining certain offenses and giving jail time 
giving um, trying minors as adults and giving longer jail sentences to people and things of that kind, as I remember reading in the book. Sorry, I am yeah. generalizing here, and I know you're very careful not to make these kinds of <laughs> generalizations, but in the absence of a photographic memory, I don't, I don't have any other option right now. Um, no, I think what you're saying is is right. What, what I point out in the book is that by the time super predators came on the scene, there was already a trajectory toward these harsher and harsher youth crime laws. So... Yes, I think they uh, the super predator played a causal role. It's hard to know how big it was, but it it definitely had such an impact on the public imagination. It made that stuff worse. I'm going to read another passage again, and then I would like to talk a bit about the IAT, the Implicit Association Test, everybody's favorite thing. Um, and here's another passage which I think gets to the heart again of the of the running themes, um, the themes that the, the the kind of continual themes that run through this book, and that are illustrated by these very very detailed and scrupulous and meticulously researched and described examples you. that you give. Yeah, the book is absolutely fantastic. So ah yes, here you are. So we can't improve global public health without taking a stand against anti-vaccination myths. We will never solve the pressing social issues of the day, racism and inequality in the education gaps and so many others, while relying on claims about human behavior and how to change it that are half-true at best. The spread of half-baked behavioral science can't be explained apart from the present state of American political and intellectual life. The country has suffered from decades of rising inequality paired with interminable political dysfunction, and as institution after institution has seen its legitimacy crumble, there has been an ever-intensifying focus on the individual. We're living in what Princeton historian Daniel Rogers calls an age of fracture. In this, I'm, I'm uh, skipping a little bit. In this dispensation, we are taken to be discrete individuals floating around in markets, increasingly responsible for our own well-being, and increasingly cut off from the big groups and institutions and shared ideas that gave American life so much of its feeling and texture and meaning in the past. Um, and then you say in brackets, of course, many Americans, by dint of their race or gender or religion or sexual orientation, would not want to return to that past. Americans are also living with the consequences of what the political scientist Jacob Hacker has termed the great risk shift. As the nation's social safety net has frayed and ever more risk has been offloaded from companies and the government onto overburdened Americans, economic insecurity has crept higher and higher up the income and wealth ladders. This only exacerbates the sense that everyone must fiercely defend their gains and stand vigilant against the possibility of sliding back into a less advantaged position. The combination of the age of fracture with a great risk shift likely affects what sort of behavioral science wins out in the marketplace of ideas. It likely shifts the focus toward improving and optimizing and repairing individuals rather than understanding how they're influenced by big, roiling forces beyond their control. So you're talking about prime world when you introduce this, but the implicit association test is, in a, in a way, the kind of 
apogee of that sort of thing, um, because it is very often your employers or your university or some other institution um, that has power, has some financial leverage or other kinds of power and control over you, trying to examine the unconscious thoughts of your mind and kind of measure or fix your your thinking, which I just find extraordinarily authoritarian enterprise um, and just a complete offloading of responsibility onto the, onto the individual. Yeah. I mean, the, the IAT is an interesting example because I think in those areas of American life where there's still, where, where race still determines who gets what or helps to determine that, it's for very complicated structural reasons. It, it, there just isn't a lot of evidence to boil this down to the idea that really what's going on is, is hiring managers choosing white people over black people. I mean, there's some of that, and I, I go through the evidence for that. But from my own experiences in media, like a, a much bigger problem is that there's just a glut of kids from backgrounds like mine. Because if you're from an upper middle class background, you can do the unpaid internships, you get lots of extra training and writing, free time to write, free time to do extracurriculars. If I'd lacked those opportunities, I probably couldn't have become a journalist. And the people who lack those opportunities are disproportionately black and brown. So I find there to be a in addition to what you're saying, which is totally right, that that companies are offloading the responsibility to be anti-racist or however you want to phrase it uh, onto individual employees, you know, in the same way that grit sort of, you look at grit and you're like, really, that's that's what you think the problem is? I, I feel the same way about the IIT because I just think America's race problems go so much deeper than that. And laying them at the feet of individual hiring managers, for example, is... um. Just just strikes me as an oversimplification. It's also, you know, I my employer has ab, um, absolutely no fucking business knowing what I think. You know, trying to sort of rummage around inside my brain. Um, I mean, I think that we sh- we can penalize people for their behavior, but we shouldn't be penal attempting to penalize, stigmatize, or even kind of investigate their thoughts. No, yeah, I agree. I, and I'm not sure there's that much evidence people have gone that far, but but of course it's concerning just to like have your employer have that data about you, especially given that there's only the, the slightest correlation between IAT scores and any sort of behavior anyway. It it doesn't the creators of the tests themselves have admitted that it's it's too noisy to like predict people's behavior. So it's just such an overhyped idea and and one of the most viral successful ideas in my book if not the most so one of you one of the theories that was mooted in your book about the IAT which i hadn't heard before was that um what it tests what it might test what it might test is how often um if you're if you're quicker to associate let's say words that um denote bad qualities with black people or African Americans, because um, I, I, I don't know that there's a kind of international version of the test. But if you're if you're quicker to denote the bad ideas with black people, that doesn't impl- necessarily imply that you personally are racist. Um, that may just imply that 
black people are less valued in your society as a whole. And therefore, you're more likely to see those words in conjunction. So it's about your memory of, of the frequency with which you encounter things rather than how you yourself think or value them. Yeah, one of the big underappreciated uh, aspects of the IIT is we don't know exactly what it's what it's measuring, and and there was a important early critique of it uh, titled, I think, "Would Jesse Jackson Fail the Implicit Association Test?" So, one theory that has some evidence behind it is the more aware you are of a group being downtrodden or having cultural stereotypes leveled against it, the higher you score on the IIT that is measuring familiarity with stereotypes. I think that the reality is it's probably, you know, uh, measuring a messy mix of different things, but that's all the more reason to ignore individual results, which we just can't really interpret meaningfully. Mm. I think even the even the designers of the test said that they had had bad results on the test. Um, yeah. Although the one time I took it, I actually, I'm slightly racist against white people, apparently. Uh, me too. <laughs> which I really... Yes. All the best like people are. <laughs> well, but it's, I mean, that sort of gets to it because I, I don't think for a minute that's true because I did grow up in a in a white town in a fairly racist country. But like, Amet, should I just take that at face value and now act as though that's true? Of course not. No, I think, I mean, I think it's just, well, there's no re, um, test, retest reliability for the IET, is there? Um, I think that no. one of the things that was said was you were supposed to take it a dozen times and average out your results. But having got a good quote unquote result, I hate white people. That's the result. Um, yep. I'm I'm never taking it again. I screenshotted yeah, and it. kept that's records of my <laughs> of my results. Carry it carry it around in your wallet. Exactly. I'm gonna have a little card <laughs> to prove. Um, do you think hmm, what's the best way to avoid being taken in by these kinds of ideas. What do all of these ideas have in common for you um, across the book? The craze for self-esteem, which we haven't talked about because um, I actually did a whole episode on that with Will Storr, whose book you quote quite extensively. Or Will is great. Reference. That guy's great. Fantastic. Yeah, I was so glad that you interviewed him. So the, the, the quick fixes, quote unquote, that you um, that you list in the book are, I think, self-esteem, raising self-esteem, the idea of the super predator and tackling super predators, the IAT, power posing um, as a sort of way of empowering women in particular to get better jobs. I have to say, I am grateful to Amy Cuddy for the power po- for the fact that the power posing led to so many absolutely hilarious um, photographs of Tory politicians, because the <laughs> British Conservative Party um, took the idea of power posing completely to heart. And there are so That's many awesome. just hysterical, hysterical photos of them. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's the kind of thing you, yes, it's sort of a conservative idea. Not that I want to <laughs> put ideas into buckets, but yeah, bootstraps um, and all that. So it, it did have that benefit. The power posing the idea of grit, um, the use of positive psychology um, in the army to tackle um, PTSD, social priming, and the IAT test. I'm not sure. If, have I forgotten any? 
You know, I can't even remember at this point. It's been so long since I wrote the book. <laughs> I think that is all of them. Yeah, uh, social priming. And then there's a chapter on um, nudges that is broadly pro-nudge, but but skeptical of the idea that, you know, nudges can can really solve complicated problems. But I think you got them all, yes. So what do all these things have in common? And how can we try to stop falling pray to them so so readily and so frequently? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, what they all have in common is they take one little slice of a complicated subject and, and overinflate it. I think that was a very badly mixed metaphor, but like, you know, uh, in terms of the education gap, conscientiousness just is, is not a huge part of the difference between why rich kids and poor kids have such disparate outcomes. And, and then a lot of these ideas just zoom in on these ideas uh, or these these claims almost to the exclusion of everything else. So there's that overinflation is one part. Yeah, so they almost always like just overextrapolate from studies that don't tell us that much. Um, so I think those are those are two things to look for. I also think like people, you know, especially if you read the book and Stuart Ritchie's book, which goes more to detail on some of the statistical stuff, you can be empowered to ask your school principal or your HR administrator What's the evidence for this? What studies can you point me toward? What what were their sample sizes? Like, why are we spending money on this thing? I do think at the end of the day, like wasting money and wasting time will motivate people a lot more than any sort of like abstract commitment to good science or rigorous science. So you, you should ask tough questions of whatever institutions fall in with this stuff. Because like, you know, the IAT and comprehensive soldier fitness alone accounted for probably... I'd imagine more than like a billion dollars in funding now between the two of them. And and when you think about what that money could have been put toward, like it gets pretty depressing. Yeah. I mean, you guys don't have a health service, do you? No. I mean, we have a few. No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel that even with those that are, with with most of them that are supposedly, even the fixes themselves, the kind of qualities that they are bigging up as as such, worthy qualities. Um, even the qualities themselves are almost all of them very ambiguous, apart from power posing. I think power posing is just seems just straightforwardly harmless, but also doesn't do anything. Um, yeah, I think that's fair to say. And as a dancer, I'm all for it. You know, strike your poses wherever. wherever I think you wish. Look, if you use power posing as like adjacent to like breathing exercises and good posture, it's it's, it's harmless. So yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not opposed to it. Amy Cuddy herself is also one of the most nervous seeming and uh, speakers that I've seen on a TED talk, which I think is quite ironic. But yeah, I I don't know how nervous she would have been without power posing, of course. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe she would have been a complete wreck without it. But I think that almost all the other things also seem to me to have really a sinister underside as well, even if they worked. Um, Self-esteem, very very obviously, um, really quickly... um, self-esteem what one person's self-esteem is another person's arrogance and narcissism yeah you know the the kind of grit the other side of that is sort of obsession the positive psychology the other side of that is just kind of suppression of the of the truth and the emotional and the actual truth of your experiences um i mean there's even even the kind of solutions seem 
superficial and they're not solutions anyway. They don't work or they have very limited effects in very limited contexts. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Whoever whoever wrote a book about that is a smart guy. <laughs> Jesse, is there anything that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, I mean, th- I, this was a great interview. It, I could clearly tell you read the book closely, which I really appreciate, which not everyone has time to do. But um, no, thank you so much for having me on. I, I will say, uh, I would just ask listeners who can afford to order the book to order the book because... Uh, you know, it, the world is not fair, but like first week sales and sales of a first book in general make a huge difference to an author. So if you're intrigued by anything I'm saying here, uh, consider giving it a shot. No worries if you can't afford it. Um, but yeah, also check out Blocked and Reported, which is the podcast with Katie. And uh, I have a, a newsletter, uh, single.substack.com. But um, no, I, I really appreciate you letting me come on. And, uh, and I hope listeners found something useful or informative here. So I would definitely recommend buying the book, if only because this is the bullshit, that the amount of kind of bullshit that is out there is huge. And the number of people who are pushing back against bullshit in a calm, um, reason, sort of evidence-based way is small. Not to so, mention, han- you forgot handsome. Um, and handsome, yes. How do you push <laughs> back in a handsome way, though? You push back Just, against bullshit in a in a sexually appealing way. Exactly. Um, yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Sadly, I gather you're you're taken. You know, you have an uh, equ- equine girlfriend. <laughs> That's a deep, deep blotter reported uh, bestiality <laughs> joke. It's a very um, appealing podcast. I highly recommend the podcast if you're the kind of person who goes on Twitter and kind of enjoys seeing drama and people doing and saying crazy things. If you're the kind of person who follows my friend um, Christoph Halalcoholism, whose um, who's handle I'll put in the show notes. Good follow. I think he's, Very good follow. I think he's the best. He's my favorite account on Twitter. If you enjoy that kind of thing, you're going to love the podcast. Um, and it's the only thing that's made it possible for me to run, for me to become a runner. Wow. This year. So maybe this is a, a, a new public health intervention we can have a TED Talk about. Yes. Of course, before buying Jesse's book, you should buy my book. But, um, but um, what, <laughs> Absolutely. you know, if you have any spare change left after that, do pre-order. Um, pre-ordering is loving. And thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me on. This was great. My pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.